Welcome to Cornerstone. We're glad you've joined us. Today, we'll be hearing from a special guest speaker. Listen in and be encouraged as we spend some time in God's Word together. It is the most effective sales pitch of all time, and therefore the most enduring. And even though it almost always results in immediate buyer's remorse, we, we keep going for it. We just keep being convinced by it. It is simply this. You will be like God. And of course, it's Satan who said it. About a month ago, I was with you. We, we saw the first time he ever used that pitch. And it was, of course, in the Garden of Eden. And the impact, of course, uh, was enormous. Just remind ourselves of what happened there. God gave them paradise, but then Satan made them a, a better offer, or so they thought. And they went with Satan. And as we discussed a month ago, we've been doing the same thing ever since. God tells us what is good. The world makes us what looks at the moment like a better offer. We go with the world, and then we pay the price. Now, the price they paid in the garden is a price that all of us paid, was death for us, first spiritual and physical, and then destruction for the world. Because Paul, the apostle in the book of Romans, does a kind of impact assessment on Genesis 3, and he traces it all back to what happened that day in the garden. So Satan is making us a better offer, but of course we know there's no better offer than Jesus. And every time we are tempted, we are faced with a choice. Do I go with that better offer that I think the world is making, or do I go with Jesus? And what's amazing is even though we know better, that offer continues to draw us in. You will be like God. Today we're going to look at Genesis 11. That's the Tower of Babel. It's a familiar story. You learned it in Sunday school. But I happen to think, having as I prepared for, for this time together today, that it'd be hard to find a passage that's more relevant for the 21st century than this. And I think you'll see why as we dig into it. I'm calling this uh, message Dominion, Not Defiance, because that's really what's at stake. So let's look at that together. We're not going to go all the way to Genesis 11 right now. We're going to give a little background first uh, that really just a reminder of what God's plan for us originally was. And his plan was for us to fill the earth and to manage it for him. To fill the earth and manage it for him. And we see this at the moment that humanity was first created. We see it in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Then he goes on in the remaining verses in that section to explain dominion over what? Well, it's dominion over the entire earth. Then he says in verse 28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. We were made in the image of God, and that resulted in two things. First of all, it resulted in a capacity for intimate oneness with him. It's a capacity that Adam and Eve enjoyed, at least enjoyed at least initially in the garden before sin. It's unfortunately a capacity that was uh, interrupted by human sin and the fall. And it's a capacity that's restored with the new birth in the indwelling Spirit of God. But that capacity for intimate oneness with God isn't the only thing that being made in God's image did for us. It also gave us a responsibility, and we see it right here, 
a responsibility as those made in his image to represent him in the world, to have dominion over it, to subdue it. A lot of interesting words are used here. But he created in the human person a certain kind of genius that allowed us that, to, to exercise that dominion. He gave us a capacity to rule over the earth. But notice, it's ruling over it and managing it for him. We are his servant stewards. So it's his plan that we would fill the earth, and that filling the earth, we would manage it for him, for his purposes, for his glory. You see a micro view of that when Adam, at this point the only human being, was placed in the garden in chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Well, there you have it. To work it and keep it, to, to, to care for it and to maintain it. That's an exercise of the dominion that we all are to exercise as people made in the image of God. So that was God's original intention. But, of course, then the fall came. And the fall interrupted our capacity for that intimate oneness with God, but not our responsibility to exercise dominion over the earth. Because even after the flood came, and there was this massive judgment on human sin, and the only remaining human beings were Noah and his family, this command was repeated. Repeated in Genesis chapter 9. So if you turn over there quickly, Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. This is all setting up for a, for a discussion of Genesis 11. Genesis 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons. And at this point, it's his family. They're the only people. And, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Repeating what he had said to Adam and Eve. And then over in verse 7. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So that was the command, to fill the earth as managers of the earth for him, servant stewards of God. Well, then chapter 10 comes along. Chapter 10 is interesting. It looks at first like a genealogy, but it's really not. It's, it's more, it's been called a table of nations. As you read through it, you see a lot of names, and, and, and yet what you may not notice is that a lot of those names aren't actually names of people. They're names of tribes, names of nations, names of physical lands, geographic terms. And so he's describing here what became of humanity and how humanity then multiplied into these various nations and, and yes, how they spread out. So it looks on the surface at first glance as though they're doing exactly what God told them to do. But if you look closely, you, you get some hints that maybe something wasn't quite right. And you see those hints, first of all, in verse... Uh, chapter 10, verse 5. Uh, From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, and in their nations. Their own languages. Well, that's interesting. Where'd that come from? And then going on to verse 20. These are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Well, again, that mention of languages. Funny, they didn't have multiple languages on the ark. No, they didn't. Verse 25, to Eber was, were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. In his days the earth was divided. And it's interesting, it's not just that it, that was the moment where people scattered, though it's true. But there's also a division that took place here. And many of the names of the nations and peoples that you read about in Genesis 10, they end up being enemies. Not just scattered, but divided and at odds with one another. And it was in Peleg's generation that this happened. If you go back and look at it and sort of count, you'll see this is just a few generations after Noah. Whatever happened here, it didn't take long to happen after they left the ark. 
And then one more reference to this, verse 31. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So what happened? This is what we're going to look at. What happened is that we pursued our plan instead of God's. That's what happened. And chapter 11 is going to give us the details. But notice, I say we and our, not they and their. And there's a reason for that. One reason is that we're talking about humanity here, so we might as well just own it. And the reason it's appropriate that we own it is that we've never abandoned the dream, that dream of being like God, of being gods of our own lives and on our own existence. In fact, what I think we're going to see today as we look at Genesis 11 and kind of apply it to today is that we've been trying to rebuild Babel ever since. And we'll see what I mean by that. And one other point, just sort of a general principle, when you're looking at the sin of other people, whether in the Bible or just in life, it's really a good idea to assume that we do any better. So it's just go ahead and assume that, okay, I'm in. What have I got to learn here? So it's going to be we and our throughout. So just a little reminder, God's plan was that we would fill the earth and manage it for him. That was his plan. That was his intention. Our plan, Genesis 11, is that we would stay together and become famous. So God's plan, fill the earth, manage it for him. Our plan, stay together and make a name for ourselves. Become famous. Now we're ready for Genesis 11. What happened? What happened? God did, by the way, accomplish his intention of scattering people out, but at a price of consequent division between peoples and so on. But what happened? Let's look at the details. Genesis chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. So this is shortly after the ark. Uh, People began to multiply, and at this point there was no division. There was no division of languages. Everybody spoke the same languages, had the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. It's interesting, that phrase, they migrated, how does ESV put it? They migrated from the east. Well, if you look at a map, uh, Ararat is almost due north of the plain of Shinar. So I always kind of wondered, what does it mean that they migrated from the east? It looks due south to me. Well, it turns out this phrase can mean migrated or moved in the east, eastward, from the east. Directionally, it doesn't really give us any information. So I think what it means here is, they, they moved in the east from Ararat down to the plain of Shinar. And from the perspective of the audience of the, this book of the Old Testament, who were at this time in the Holy Land, it would be in the east. So Moses is writing this. He's telling them, these people that left the ark, they multiplied and they moved together in the east to this plain of Shinar. Now, automatically we see there's a problem. Automatically there's a problem. Because... They're not scattering the way they were supposed to. They're multiplying, but they're staying together. Hmm. Problem number one. All right, let's read on. Verse three. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. It's like a petroleum distillate, like tar, something like that. They could, that, that was their mortar. So they didn't have rocks for, you know, stones for, for building these things. They, they made bricks of clay and used the tar for mortar. Then they said, here's what they're up to. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. 
What? But I thought that's exactly what God said was supposed to happen. Yeah, it was. His plan was for them to be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They didn't want that. They wanted to, they wanted to stay together. So it's just direct defiance of what God has said. It's interesting the way the New English Translation, that Bible, puts it. I like it. They said, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. And the Hebrews got that connection. That's the way, that's the reason they did it. They built this great city, including this great tower, so that they might make a name for themselves. Now, who are they trying to impress? Because our understanding from the text is they're the only people in the world right now. Well, who they're trying to impress are their ancestors. What they're trying to do is set up this, this empire, this dynasty, with themselves as founders, so that for the rest of history, people would look back and say, they were the ones. They were the ones that kept us together. They were the ones that formed this great people. Though it's in direct defiance of what God has said, their motivation is this, stay together and become famous. Make a name for themselves rather than a name for God. Glorifying themselves rather than glorifying Him. And of course, that idea of building that tower to the heavens, you can see the echoes of what Satan offered Eve in the garden. You will be like gods. It's the same offer. It's the same temptation. So this is what they're up to. It's funny. Didn't God just destroy the world? Yeah, but that was like generations ago. We're all right. We can do what we want. No risk in defying God. Amazing. Okay, so... Here they go. Now, what's God's take on this? God's take is, well, he sees arrogance. Uh, he sees defiance. But he also sees something about their destiny. First of all, the arrogance. Now, we will build this great city. Human beings are pretty incredible. I mean, things we're capable of. My years in oil and gas, I don't know how many times I would look at some plan, some project, and say, we're going to do What? It's just absolutely amazing. <laughs> You're going to do what? And it's hardly a field of human endeavor now that if you didn't get close to it, you wouldn't ask yourself that same question. You're doing what? Absolutely stunning. And, you know, we tell ourselves that we're a lot smarter now than people were in the past. I think we're wrong about that. I think we're wrong about that. I think we've got greater knowledge retention now than we had in the past. I think we have greater handle around technology and science than they did. But in terms of native human ability, I think we've probably been deteriorating. But what we see here is them using the incredible ingenuity that God has given them, the incredible capacity that God has given them for their purposes instead of his. And that is such a common problem. So he sees, first of all, arrogance. Like, who do they think they are? Oh, they'll tell you who they think they are. They're making a name for themselves. But secondly, God sees defiance. I mean, just absolute direct defiance. Lest we be scattered. Wait a minute. Scat scattering is exactly what God said he wanted. Yeah, I don't know. It's not what we want. It's not what we want. So he sees arrogance. He sees defiance. But he also sees something else. He sees destiny. Let's look at these verses. Verses 5 and 6. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. They're not supposed to be one people at this point. They're supposed to have spread out. But they haven't, so he notices that. But then, 
And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Hebrews says, all that they propose to do will not be withheld from them. It's kind of a, kind of a surprising statement. You think, well, I don't know, there's quite a lot that's impossible for us. What does that mean? But look at it from this point of view, from the standpoint of human aspiration. What is it that we won't try? What is it, even now, that we would say, oh, we, we can't do that? That's impossible. I mean, I'm old enough to remember, I like to shock younger people by telling them I was born during the Eisenhower administration. They just, that's like Lincoln for them. They just can't imagine anybody still breathing. But I remember the live broadcast of people walking on the moon for the first time. And at that point, you think, well, I don't know what we can't do if we can do that. I mean, after all, you can put a man on the moon, but we can't do this and such. It became kind of a joke. But, I mean, look at the difference in the world now. And God's saying, there's a new destiny here. This amazing thing I've created, the human person, with all this ingenuity and genius and capacity to rule on my behalf, to, to honor me, to do all these good things. Once that starts going down this wrong path, what won't they try? What won't they do? When will they say to themselves, oh, okay, we've gone far enough on that. That's, we're not going to go any farther. So God sees this. He sees not only arrogance and defiance, but he sees a destiny. And he's got to put a stop to it. So what we see God do is, the way I thought of it is he applies a tourniquet. Let me clean that up. There we go. Now I can see it a little better. God's tourniquet. And I call it a tourniquet because it's not going to cure the problem. He's just going to slow the bleeding. The cure of the problem ultimately is the cross. But in the meantime, he just wants to slow down the bleeding. And how does he do that? Well, God uses languages to scatter us and divide us. And I kind of wish I'd put it the other way around there on the, on the slide. Scatter us, yes, but also divide us as a consequence. Look at verse 7. Come, let us go down and, and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Construction stopped because they couldn't understand each other anymore. And eventually they milled around and found some others that they could understand, and they grouped up, and, and, and there was no cooperating with one another anymore, and so finally they had no choice but to wander off. Okay, if, whatever it takes to get you guys to do what I told you to do, scatter, fill the earth, multiply. But it's interesting, when you go back to Genesis 10 and read the list, you see nations that would become Israel's enemies and, and, and enemies of one another. You know, it didn't have to be that way. We could have scattered and filled the earth, and, but no, no, we, we wanted it our way. So God had to not only scatter us, but do it by dividing us. And, of course, we see the consequences in history ever since. So it's not a cure. He's just trying to slow the bleeding. But, you know, today, the tourniquet has loosened, and the bleeding is picking up. Back in my oil and gas days, one of the things that remained, just amazed me is no matter where I was in the world, and I worked in a lot of different places, I could always function in English, uh, which is good because I know two languages, English and Texan. That's it. 
And I listen to other people speak English. I listen with a Texas accent. So it's often difficult for me to understand what they're saying, but they're good. They're awesome. And, and there were places that, like one time, I remember, I, I would always try to learn a little something just to honor the locals. And one time I, I introduced an entire meeting in Thai. Um, I pulled a muscle. It was the most difficult thing. And my boss didn't know that was coming. He just looked at me. He was with me in the meeting. And I, I forgot it all immediately, but I don't think the people in the room ever forgot it. And we were lifelong friends from that moment on. Uh, and, and so that was nice. But it was completely unnecessary because everybody in that room understood English perfectly well. Thank you very much. And I remember one time a guy in Moscow yelled at me in, in Russian because he didn't think Americans ought to be leading a Russian project. And I kind of understand how he would feel. I'd feel the same way if, the, if it were reversed. And uh, but he was yelling at me in Russian. His English was great. He just wanted to make the point by yelling at me in Russian. And of course, I don't understand Russian. So some poor Kazakh guy had to translate the Russian into English. And what the Russian was saying was so horrible, the Kazakh guy was embarrassed having to say it, but the Russian guy was insistent. And he understood English as well as I did, the Russian, so he could check up on the translation of the Kazakh guy. There was no hiding it. Awkward moment. But uh, actually, wherever you go in the world, though, you, you find that um, at a certain level, you can operate with English. The tourniquet has gotten loose. Now, it's not just a, an issue of language, uh, though that constraint is gone. It's also, there's a new spirit of, of ambition out there in the human spirit, a new determination to be like God. And I want to talk about that a little bit, and I want to frame this all as we're rebuilding Babel. We're hard at work rebuilding this city. I mean, we had to abandon it there in Genesis 11. We have abandoned it no longer. We're back, and we're building as fast as we can, having achieved dominion. We are now reaching for a kind of deity. Achieve dominion. I put that in scare quotes because we don't have nearly as much dominion as we think, but we're telling ourselves there's a long list of long-standing human problems that we've now solved. There's a book here that I've found really interesting, and it's not one I recommend except if you just want to kind of learn the contemporary perspective on this. It's called Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow. It was written in 2017 by Yuval Harari. And uh, it's a very, very secular, he has no interest in religion, no interest in God, thinks it's all nonsense, but it's a very interesting contemporary account of this rebuilding of Babylon, though he does not put it that way. But when I read this book, what I see is Genesis 11, 1 through 9, nine verses, packed into 450 pages. That's what I see. And it is enormously instructive. Now, what he starts out by explaining, it's this dominion thing that we talked about. We've achieved dominion. What does he mean? Well, he's thinking about three things specifically. Dominion over hunger, famine specifically. Uh, dominion over plagues. And dominion over war. So, for example, he says about famine, mass famines, here we go, still strike some areas from time to time. But they're, they're exceptional. And they're almost always caused by human politics rather than by natural catastrophes. So technically, we've overcome it. And when it does happen, he says, oh, we can rush in because the global supply chain is so good that no one, hardly anybody actually starves. You know, when I read that the first time, I thought back to the early days of the COVID pandemic because we've been involved for a long time in East Africa and in Uganda. Many of you know that. Uh, and uh, when COVID hit Uganda, what you may not know is that a plague of locusts hit all of East Africa as well. 
And, I mean, enormous, enormous destruction of crops. And there was massive starvation across East Africa. Massive. And so our work of trying to educate pastors and, and so on quickly morphed into trying to get food over there to people. But what was the condition of the global supply chain at that time? A lot of people died. So much for achieving dominion. But there's also, he says, victory over plague. He writes, every few years, this was 2017, every few years we're alarmed by the outbreak of some potential new plague, yet thanks to efficient countermeasures, these incidents have so far resulted in a comparatively small number of victims. And he talks about the Ebola outbreak that even made its way to the United States and what a panic there was and several others. But he points out that in every instance, only a few thousand people died because the countermeasures are now so effective. Homo Deus, 2017. COVID, 2019. And 2020. And 2021. And 2022. And depending on how you count the victims, globally, almost 7 million people have died. Then there's also victory over war. A growing segment of humankind has come to see, he writes, war is simply inconceivable. For the first time in history, when governments, corporations, and private individuals consider their immediate future, many of them don't think about war as a likely event. That's extraordinary. Uh, 2017. He goes on to say, Thanks for helping me out with this in the back. We had a little technical problem. We don't understand what's happening, but here it is. There is no scenario, he writes, for a serious war breaking out next year between Germany and Poland, between Indonesia and Philippines, or between Brazil and Uruguay. But interestingly enough, there is no mention of uh, Russia and Ukraine or China and Taiwan. Now, it's interesting. Remember back when Putin was first on the border of the Ukraine? And all the smart people said, there's no way he's going in. It's inconceivable that he would actually invade. I think we understand now the spirit that led us to conclude that this was an impossibility. War in our time? Ridiculous. Impossible. It'll never happen. And what's so amazing about this is that Harari wrote this in 2017. It was in 2014 that Putin invaded Ukraine the first time. Is, are our memories so short? that what actually happened in 2014 is inconceivable by 2017? Well, here it is now. President, our president said just very recently, last few days, just celebrating the unity that we now have in Europe. And what he meant was not Europe as a whole because Moscow is in Europe. He meant Western Europe. And it's a unity that's really an alliance against the Russians as Europe finds itself in the first major ground war since the Second World War. Yesterday I was with one of my fellow C-12 chairs. He's going to be in the summer launching C-12. That's the marketplace ministry I'm part of, as you know, uh, in Taiwan. And people are asking, Taiwan? Now? I mean, with these threats from, from China, he's very well aware of the threats. What was inconceivable before Russians, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the Chinese invasion of Taiwan, is no longer inconceivable. But my friend's point of view is, this is our only opportunity. If the door is closing, we must go in now. We must go in now. 
so much for victory over war. But the spirit of the time captured well in this. In the 21st century, the third great project of humankind, well, what are the first two? Let's pause for a moment. I mean, after all, we've overcome famine. We've overcome plague. We've overcome war. Whatever will we do with ourselves? And the answer is, we will overcome death. We will overcome unhappiness. We will become gods. In the 21st century, the third great project, number one, mortality. Number two, unhappiness. Number three, third great project will be to acquire for us divine powers of creation and destruction and upgrade homo sapiens to homo deus. And he's quick to point out that when he talks about homo deus, he doesn't mean the kind of God we see in the Bible who's omniscient and omnipotent and all those things. He says it's more like the gods we see in Hinduism, gods that have these human foibles, but gods nevertheless, gods of enormous power. And he said the human agenda now in in the 21st century is this, is to achieve this kind of divine power of creation and destruction. What does he have in mind? Well, it's all well and good to cure disease, for example. But what if you don't want to stop there? I mean, let me, let me give you an example. There's a lot of great research going on right now with direct neural networks connecting machines with the minds so that people with non-functioning limbs will be able to walk or move their arms. It's amazing work. But you see, when has the desire to solve a medical problem stopped there? I mean, don't we have a history of seeing these as opportunities for upgrades? When you talk about the human person being transformed, you know, a lot of people would say, you know, for the sake of my happiness, we're going to need to do a little bit more. Well, what do you have in mind? Well, the issue of gender, for example. I'm unhappy because my self-concept doesn't align with my biology. Well, what's going to be done about that? Medical science to the rescue. Sort of reminds you of what we saw in Genesis 11. Nothing will be withheld from them. Anything that we can do, we will do. There's always a great deal of discussion around issues like that, and countless other issues, countless other issues in science, technology, medicine ethical questions, and the need for wisdom so that we can say this far and no farther. But no human wisdom can withstand the desire for human happiness. Happiness will knock down barriers of wisdom every time. I want this. I need this. I demand this. And the barrier of human wisdom is gone. And we charge ahead. It happens every time. power to create, power to destroy. And so, you know, with the human person, how do we become like gods? Well, there's genetic manipulation we can do, but why stop there? I mean, after all, weren't we just talking about a technology interface between some device and the human mind, and immediately we're thinking about cyborgs and transhumanism and all these issues that are absolutely being pursued now. I mean, the, 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 the 
barriers to change. How much change can we really bring about just by manipulating genetics? Well, it's fairly limited. So don't acknowledge those limitations. Work around them with technology. And even simple things like this. The, the apps on this phone are being designed to make me dependent on them. You know that. And the data, every time I do anything apart from ExpressVPN, I guess, uh, there's somebody out there going, oh, okay, well, we'll make note of that. And so the marketing messages and the things I want, they not only try to shape my desires, they try to read my desires constantly and take more and more control of the human person. We all know this. This is happening in an incredible degree. I'm actually carrying a computer around with me. So many examples that we could give. And let me just give one from my own field, former field of, of energy. It always struck me as odd. My undergraduate degree is in chemistry, and so I knew a little bit about just, you can do a lot with petroleum. I mean, is it feedstock and organic chemistry? Oh, my goodness, it's incredible. But what always bothered me is that the, there's sort of two schools of thought. One school of thought is, oh, you pump as much as you can, use as much as you can, anything you can't use, sell it, just go, 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 go. Other school of thought is we shouldn't be using that stuff at all. We just need to stop right now. Now, they seem like diametrically opposed schools of thought, but they have one thing in common. And what they have in common is a failure to recognize the, the technical and material obstacles to whatever it is we think we're going to do next. Because we can talk about alternative forms of energy, but the technical problems are enormous and the material problems are even greater. And I'm going to geek out for you here for just a moment. If you did say, no more fossil fuels, we're going to use all renewables and all these other sources, and you did the best job you possibly can of optimizing this form of energy production for that use, that form for that use, and you built everything you needed to build to replace current levels of energy use, you would have on planet Earth only a fraction of the copper you need to pull that off. The materials just aren't here. I mean, we're aware, some of us have the problem with lithium. I mean, you keep talking about batteries, batteries, and more batteries. But the only ones we have that are really useful are lithium-based. It's the holy grail of science. Come up with a new battery. But lithium is limited. And then you get into geopolitical problems of who's increasingly controlling it. The problems are enormous. But the assumption is, oh, we'll solve those. So, use all you want. Our kids will come up with something else. And the same problem in almost every field of thought. You look in economics. I mean, the assumption now is that there's nothing more important than satisfying our own appetites. So we will spend as much money as we possibly can to satisfy our appetites. And when we run out, we've maxed out our credit cards, so to speak. We'll get credit cards in the name of our kids. And when we've maxed those out, our grandkids. All to satisfy our insatiable appetites. But what will they do? I don't know. They'll figure something out. Because there's nothing more important than satisfying our appetites. Happiness, after all. We may well think of the new human agenda as consisting really of only one project. Attaining divinity. I love this quote. The worship of humankind has conquered the world. The worship of humankind has conquered the world. Now, what does God think? 
What's his take on this? He saw this coming in Genesis 11. Nothing will be impossible for them. Wow, was that true? He sees again the arrogance. He sees the defiance. And not just of some command to scatter, but countless other commands of God. Cast aside. Cast aside. And he sees that destiny that he saw coming in Genesis 11 being lived out. Deity. It's destruction. You know, it's, it's interesting. One thing that Harari says in the book is if, if plagues happen, it's, it's our own fault. Because we have the technology to have prevented it. If, if famine happens and we don't resolve the problem, it's only because of politics. It's our own fault. Well, yeah. And if there is no war, and hasn't been a major war for quite some time, he would point out, it's because of mutually assured destruction. We so armed ourselves with weapons that we are, we're afraid we're going to annihilate the human race. Not especially godlike. In, anyway, even our progress reveals our brokenness. Gain-of-function research. We'll have no one to blame but ourselves. Exactly. We are sinners in need of a Savior. That's why we are not God. Not even close. You know, it's, it, the solution is simple, Really. It's, it's dominion without defiance. It's dominion with godly submission. You see, there's absolutely nothing wrong with using every bit of human genius and ingenuity we can muster to relieve human suffering. Nothing wrong at all. That's, that's all good. There's, there's nothing wrong with, with doing all that we can to see to it that as much good as possible is to deliver to our fellow image bearers. There's, there's no request here, no suggestion here, that you ought to take human genius and dial it back because it's just too dangerous. Not at all. If there's a disease, we can cure it. Let's get on with it. If there's a problem we can solve. Let's do it. But human wisdom alone it, it offers no barrier to this this divine ambition that we harbor. None. What's needed is godly submission or else dominion turns into defiance. It's people who understand that, that God gave us these incredible abilities, these incredible opportunities, not to glorify ourselves, but to glorify him and to serve the good of people made in his image, including our own families and people around us in our community and the world. So the call for us is a call to dominion, absolutely right. Be as smart as you can for the glory of God, as smart as you can for the good of others. And I mean, simple things, like you go into work on Monday and you open up a spreadsheet on your computer. Manage whatever it is you're managing on that spreadsheet for the glory of God and the good of others. Not for yourself. Not for your own ambition. But as a servant steward of the King of Kings who owns that business after all. And you go into that lab, and, and you're working to, to solve a problem of human suffering. Thank you. But understanding and submission to God 
that you might be, need to be one of the people that stands in the breach and says, no farther. We can't trust ourselves to do that. You can, you can close a deal in a way that honors God by honoring every image bearer involved. You see, you see the idea? It's dominion without defiance. It's dominion with submission to God's purposes. That what's important to him and what are we trying to accomplish for his glory and not for ours? So you can see why I think Genesis 11 is kind of relevant today. Because back then, God saw it coming and he applied a tourniquet. A tourniquet's getting loose and we're starting to bleed. And the call of God is to honor him Fill the earth, every area of of thought, every area of enterprise, every aspect of education, every field of endeavor, be there and model submission to God. That's the call. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for uh, the moment you've put us in, as, as frightening as it is, as intimidating as it can be, the opportunity to stand out is enormous. And I pray, Lord, that you would give each of us a clear sense of what dominion with godly submission looks like tomorrow and the next day in whatever little corner of the world you've put us. And to, to embrace the fact that you're still scattering us abroad into all these different fields of endeavor and these offices and these schools and these neighborhoods to represent you well, to use everything you've built into us to honor you. And Father, though, I thank you that you didn't stop with just applying a tourniquet to stop the bleeding, but that instead you sent your son to solve the problem, to redeem us, to bring us from death to life, to give us your spirit to indwell us so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for the one, your son, who went to the cross for us. And as we eat the bread and the cup in a moment, communion Sunday. I pray that you would remind us that, that it is for him that we now live. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have trust. Thanks for spending some time with us today. For further information about today's podcast or our church in general, please visit us at cornerstonecbc.org. That's cornerstonecbc.org. Thanks. See you next time.